And I'm fucking livid that we are stuck in the timeline where Alex Jones is right. Kind of work. Why aren't the Amish afraid of, of COVID? Because they don't have TV. As I said, democracy is a system that reinforces authoritarian ideals. I hope I don't get canceled. Being a victim of a tragedy doesn't make you an expert in public policy. But well, I mean, AOC is a drama queen and she's full of <laughs> shit. Remember, they lost the Afghan war 10 years ago. <laughs> you brought a freaking guillotine. They said, you don't get to tell us no, we're in the state health department, and I said, hell no. It wasn't making Christianity better, it was making rock worse. Uh, what what the fuck do you have on your face, Olivia? You want to make the world a better place? Have some babies, and raise them to not be stupid. I remember thinking, man, governments are not going to like this shit. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, activists, anarchists, shit posters, and just people of the internet, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining another episode of O'Donnell for Liberty. As always, I'm your host, Justin O'Donnell. Before we get started, just remember whatever platform you listen on, whether YouTube Live, Odyssey, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, or on the air at LRN.FM, you can help grow the show by liking, commenting, subscribing, and most of all, sharing with your friends. If you enjoy the content, you can join our production team by visiting patreon.com slash O'Donnell for Liberty. Again, that's patreon.com slash O'Donnell, the number four Liberty today. And make sure to check out snackswag.com. Snackswag.com, your home for all your favorite Liberty merch. Great new merch out there. Great new campaign merch. If you're a fan of Libertarian candidates, Jeremy Kaufman is running for U.S. Senate in New Hampshire. You can go get all the rogue merch for his campaign over on snackswag.com today and if you want to keep in touch between shows follow me on social media join our community discord channel where you can chat with other fans of the show at any time all these links can be found in the description of the video or podcast you are listening to so give it a click give it a visit sign up today join the community join the discord come say hi meet our friends it is a fantastic community and it gets bigger and bigger every week you guys are what makes this worth doing it now what are we talking about tonight national divorce still trending it's always trending. I think it's going to trend until it happens. It's something we want to talk about until it happens. It has to happen. Why does it have to happen? Well, who better to talk about the idea and the process and the nuance and maybe even the semantics and the logistics of how it's going to happen than somebody who's running for a statewide office on a platform of doing exactly that. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Candidate for Lieutenant Governor of the great state of Texas, Lone Star Republic, Daniel Miller. Daniel, how are you tonight? Uh, I'm doing great, and thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for joining. As, as I said, national divorce is trending. You you are running for Lieutenant Governor of Texas. Mm-hmm. How in the hell did you get it in your head to go do something crazy like that? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, first and foremost, I have to say that that this was never in the cards for me. You know, for, for me, uh, August 24th, 1996, I refer to as my, my proverbial line in the sand day, right? That's the day that I embraced and, and pledged to work for Texas independence. Uh, that led to the foundation of the Texas nationalist movement in 2005. Uh, and, you know, we, we have been on a trajectory to work on, first and foremost, helping Texans understand the benefits of Texas becoming a self-governing independent nation. Uh, but more importantly, affecting the political change through political advocacy to enable that vote to take place. <clears throat> so uh, at the beginning of this, uh, well, technically last year, I guess, beginning of last year, State Representative Kyle Biederman 
filed the legislation that we've been proposing for several sessions called the Texas Independence Referendum Act. And as part of that filing, we, we, is our, you know, the organization that I'm the head of, it has grown to become the, the largest political advocacy organization outside the two major political parties here in Texas. So, you know, we, we made a, a very confident promise at the beginning. And we said that any legislator that did not sign on to the piece of legislation or publicly advocate for letting Texans vote on this issue, as is our right, uh, would face a, a primary challenger. We would we would challenge them in the elections. And and the exact phrase I used was is that if they don't represent us, then they cannot represent us. Uh, and sure enough, you know, political machinations, the political establishment stood in the way. Uh, that culminated in a in a pretty large, um, I guess, highly viewed press conference where I spoke inside the Capitol in the Speaker's press room, <laughs> and, and just highlighted everything you know, just kind of laid it all out. And during that process of going out promoting the bill and after that, uh, a lot of people were had approached me, uh, people from organizations that you would not traditionally think would be sort of on board with all this, but they came to the same conclusion that I did, which is Texas has uh, a leadership problem, right? We have weak leadership when it comes to pushing back against the federal government, against standing up for Texans and taking a Texas first attitude. So um, I, I began to get asked at all of those events uh, if I would run specifically for lieutenant governor, which I thought was weirdly specific. Um, <laughs> but but it really culminated in an open letter uh, toward the tail end of last year that just flat out asked me because of the the man, the uh, medical mandates, uh, the lockdowns, the the border issue, the skyrocketing property taxes, the Texas issue, um, just flat out. I mean, they just literally called me out and said run, and so. Uh, a lot of consideration, uh, a lot of discussion, uh, a, a, a identification of a strategic path to victory. And here I am uh, on the cusp of forcing the lieutenant governor into a runoff on March 1st. Well, that, that's incredible. But I, the, one of the points you made there is if they're not going to represent us, if they're, it's not even if they're not going to represent us, it's if they're not going to let you have a voice in your representation, because sure. you guys aren't even asking for legislation to declare secession. You're asking no. for a referendum. You're asking to let the people decide and put it to a vote of the people. And like, I think that's the part everyone's missing here is like, we're not, we're not lining up with guns in Lexington and Concord and demanding secession. Now we're, we're asking in New Hampshire, in Texas and in California, the three big secession movements. Now, like the push isn't to just demand it and declare it. It's like, Hey, we're pretty sure we want this to happen. Can we ask our neighbors? If they agree. Yeah. Look, I mean, for us, for us, it's really two things. Number one, article one, section two of the Texas constitution yeah. specifies that, uh, that it is the inalienable right of the people to alter reform or abolish their government in such manner as they may think expedient. Right. So we know that mm -hmm. all questions, fundamental questions of governance must be put to the people of Texas. But I, I think, I think the very, I think what has been the most telling particularly after the legislation got filed, uh, we always knew the political establishment were, were very um, reluctant oh. uh, to, to push this. But at the end of the day, the fact of the matter is, is that they know what we know. And it's this, if we put this to a vote of the people of Texas tomorrow, it wins. And <laughs> for, for them, it, it means, uh, you know, in the long run, a cutoff from out-of-state cash into their campaign coffers. It means that the ladder from state office up to federal office gets cut off. 
and and all of the uh, sort of personal uh, the the personal perks that they get for keeping Texas in the union go away. So they're they're fighting hard against it. They propagandize against it, but ultimately we know if we go if it goes to a vote, it wins. I think that's the big one there. Uh, like here in New Hampshire, we're pushing for a constitutional amendment that'll just allow us to put the question on the ballot. We're not actually sure it'll pass. Like, yeah. I'm not actually sure it'll pass. I don't think there's enough sentiment to get 70% of New Hampshire voters on board with secession. I, I want to see the question asked, and I want to see where we are with it. But I don't think anybody doubts that if the question is put to Texans, Texans want to go. Well, look, I think, and I said this when I released my book, Texas, back in 2018. Uh, a, a lot of the media attention came from outside of Texas. You know, it, it right. went it went bestseller on Amazon four different times. I mean, it was uh, sh shocking to me. Uh, but a, a lot of the media attention came from outside of Texas. And what I what I told those folks was, is that you may think because it's about Texas that it doesn't apply to you. But the fact of the matter is, is that the questions that we are asking here in Texas the the upside down nature of the relationship between the federal system and, and Texas, these are all discussions and questions and examinations that everyone in every state needs to have. You know, when when I talk about specifically, and it's been sort of a point that we've made for for years now. Uh, several years ago, there was a report that was released. Uh, there were actually two. One, the one that I can recall right now, was done um, at George Mason University. And it dealt with the idea of federal regulatory accumulation, right? So that the, the premise is, is that the federal government has, has never met a regulation that they don't like. And so therefore they, they regulate and then they place another layer of regulation over and over and over. So this George Mason University study actually wanted to look at what the economic impact of that was. And they examined it, not just the United States as a whole, but state by state, but applicable across the board was what that effect was, which is a 2% compression of GDP every single solitary year. Uh, and so when you take that and you tally it up from the beginning of the growth of the federal regulatory state in 1949, what you get with a compounding 2% compression of GDP up until the time that report was released was uh, the realization that, uh, well, just the, the, the final thing that came out of it was at the time the port report was released, uh, median household income was about $55,000, and they concluded that in the absence of federal regulatory accumulation, it would have been $330,000. So what that immediately means is, is that, you know, you can look at it two ways. Either the federal government is stealing 85% of our earning potential, or on the day we withdraw from the union and get out from under all that regulatory accumulation, everybody get, gets about a 600% pay increase. I could use a 600% pay increase. <laughs> I don't know anybody who's going to say no to that. And that's been my typical go-to argument in New Hampshire. It's like, hey, like, just look at how much of your dollar. Let's take a single dollar, for instance. Once you pay it into taxes, how much of that dollar is actually spent bettering your life here in New Hampshire? Yeah. And it comes out to like 22 cents. <laughs> and I'm like, don't you think the other 88 cents, the other 78 cents would be nice to have? Like. Well and it comes back with strings attached, right? So, right. you know, there were two, two other key arguments that we make in, in that regard, just very basic arguments. And one was the study that we did uh, back in 2015 that showed that on average year on year, Texas overpays anywhere from 103 to $160 billion annually into the federal system, right? That's not how much we pay total in the federal system. That is how much we overpay. 
And so you begin to look at the economic impact of having $130 to $160 billion back in the system, and all of a sudden now Texas is not the ninth largest economy in the world. We're the seventh or eighth, right? Uh, but beyond that, uh, the, the other argument that we make is even the money that comes back comes back with federal strings attached. And you know this because in the 86th legislative session, 41% of legislation filed in, in both the House and Senate directly referenced either a the federal government, a federal law, a federal regulation, a federal court decision, or a federal agency as an attempt to try to claw back that money. And so what you come, you know, again, you come to the conclusion, first, we overpay into the system. And then second, the money that comes back in comes back with strings attached. And our laws are being written not by our electeds, but by two and a half million unelected bureaucrats and K Street lobbyists in Washington, D.C. So we have a governor who can't govern, a legislature that can't legislate and a Supreme court that is anything but Supreme here in Texas. Yeah. It, it's absolutely wild to think of. And like one of the other arguments that I don't think people talk enough about, and it, it's weird because Texans and New Granite Staters was like all on the same page fighting for secession. But at the same time, I would never want to live in Texas. And I, I bet you most of your Texans probably never want to live in New Hampshire just because the cultures are so much different. And while we can both agree in national divorce and separation and maybe even politically almost down the line, we agree on stuff. It, it's a matter of culture. Like, how can we how can we look at the federal government that spends our money, puts all these strings on how we live our lives and not realize that if we as Granite Staters here in New Hampshire, we have four votes of those 535 representatives and senators in Washington, D.C. And we're being told by Texans and Californians how we have to live our lives who don't understand our culture at all. Well, look, until until the new election, we have 38 uh, up there in Congress, uh, in the House, in the Senate, you know. And you still have uh, to and, listen and, to Californians. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and it still, and it ultimately, it doesn't matter. You know, we right. here, you know, the number one, the number one concern for Texas voters for over 15 years running has been uh, the border and immigration, right? And and there are a lot of reasons, and we can dive off into that if you want to, but that's sort of not the point of this discussion. No. <laughs> the point of the discussion is, is that here in Texas, we have a certain way that we would like our border and immigration system to be handled, and unfortunately. Our border policy is being written by people like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and a bunch of politicians that do not have to deal with the direct impact of a mismanaged border or immigration right. system. Uh, you know, and so what happens is, is that a lot, you know, sh shuffing, uh, sloughing off that sovereignty that yep. we have as Texans to a body of people that are elected not by people like us cost the Texas taxpayer on average about $12 billion annually, plus, you know, the cost of public safety and national security and public health. So, um, you know, th this is ultimately it. I I'll tell you this, and I'll share the story with you. Uh, early on in my journey uh, in being an independence advocate, I, I was lucky enough to meet a gentleman named Dr. Thomas Naylor. Uh, Dr. Naylor was a professor emeritus of economics at Duke University, and he founded the Second Vermont Republic. That was his, that was his baby, right? And you know, doc, the doc and I probably, from a policy standpoint, agreed on very little, uh, but we got to be amazing friends because we bonded around the issue of self determination. Of there's no reason that Vermont needs to govern Texas and Texas right. govern Vermont. 
you know, let Vermont be Vermont, let New Hampshire be New Hampshire, let California be California, and let Texas be Texas. Right. And, and it, whether politically, culturally, those lines, and to your point, you agreed very little on actual politics, just the simple underlying principle of self-determination being sure. most important. I had a conversation with Louis Marinelli of Cal Exit a few months ago. And in that conversation, we determined that me and Louis don't agree on damn near anything when it comes to politics. Right. But we agreed with self-determination and the principle of that, and that Californians should govern Californians, and Granite Staters should govern Granite Staters, Texas, Texans should govern Texans. Um, and like he agreed, like as bad as Sacramento is for Californians, Sacramento is better for Californians than Washington, D.C. is. Well, yeah, I mean, look, Washington, D.C., you know, they bury us under 180,000 pages of federal laws, rules, and regulations administered by 440 separate agencies, and, and they shuck out policies. Year. I mean, look, the, 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 their motto should be uh, one size fits none um, because, right. they, you know, the, there are – the divide is not the way traditionally that they would want you to think of the divide. It's the, it's us versus the political establishment, the political, the, they, they want power centralized in Washington, DC so that, uh, so that they can continue to maintain the power structure that keeps the political establishment, uh, both rich and in control. Yeah. Unfortunately, they're doing it very, very well. Uh, and they're accomplishing their goals to the detriment of all humanity. Michael Rohan, uh, watching on Facebook Live, had a chatty comment. He's like, I think those are conservative numbers because the private consumption multiplier is much higher than government spending. Mm -hmm. So the effect isn't linear. The Texas economy might be even higher ranked than seventh in the world if all the money were private. Well, and and look, that's the point. You know, that was just where, where the 103 to $160 billion overpayment Puts right. us right, but when you remove that federal regulatory accumulation, now I mean, imagine it. I mean, we're looking at the fourth or fifth largest economy in the world, uh, and you know, and there are so many other factors too. You know, for for example, you know, Texas is from a, a regulatory standpoint, we're we're a business friendly state. We have no state income tax, and we're well on our way to abolishing the property tax, especially. Uh, when I become the lieutenant governor, um, but the the bottom line is is that when you have when your citizens have more discretionary income, they are going to spend it, um, and so having that 103 to 160 billion dollar infusion in the elimination of the property tax circulating through, um, and then Texas actually enacting policies that make sense for Texas, whether they be trade policies, monetary policy, whatever it is. Um, there's absolutely no reason to believe that Texas won't be a massive global powerhouse consistently in the top five economies in the world. That's actually a good segue into a question about the logistics here, because you mentioned you have no sales tax. Um, you're looking at getting rid of property tax. No, no, we, have a, we have a sales, sales tax. tax. No income tax. We have no income tax. Here in New Hampshire, we have no sales or income tax. Um, and you're on your way to getting rid of the property tax, which, to be honest, I consider property tax the most egregious and offensive of all taxes. Well, it's immoral. It, because, like, it, you don't own your land. You don't own your property. You're paying yeah. rent to the government to, for the privilege of using it. Exactly. And if you don't pay it, you're all of a sudden homeless. To me, it's one of the most egregious and most offensive. So I applaud you on a push to get rid of it. That's something I wish everyone and anyone who understands how taxes work should realize is an absolute theft of human resources. But how do you fund Texas without those taxes? And that's the question I get here in New Hampshire all the time. People are like, how do you fund New Hampshire without, we don't have a sales tax. We don't have an income tax. How do you plan on funding an independent New Hampshire? Well, look, Texas already has a sales tax, right? So, uh, and this has come up quite a bit. Um, th there's never been a problem with, 
people understanding how Texas will fund itself outside of the federal government, especially when we talk about the overpayment, right? Uh, right. Which, look, our, our economic relationship is like going to the doctor, uh, having the doctor pull all the blood out of your body, spill 40% of it on the floor, inject the rest back into your body and go there. You wouldn't be alive without me. Right. <laughs> so, so the, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that there's never been that it's always just been a question of, of how we reclaim it. And what we have found through the economic projections is, is quite simply this. And we, we touched on it a moment ago, the sales tax is effectively a consumption tax. So, as we talk about the abolition of the property tax, there are really three aspects that we have to address here that actually flow quite well into uh, post-Texas Texas revenue generation for, for the government. Uh, number one is a top-down review of all government spending. Last 20 years of Sunset Commission recommendations, cut, consolidate, trim, get as government get government as small as it can be because, frankly, anything that's outside of its constitutionally mandated duties is garbage anyway. Okay, so that's number one. Uh, number two, from the local standpoint over the next 10 years, it's a buy-down of maintenance and operations taxes. And I know this is very Texas-specific, so bear with me. But the third part of that is is expanding the sales tax base. Okay, so we're not talking about taxing you know, necessities like food, but what we are talking about is eliminating some of these weird statutory carve-outs like eliminating this, you know, they, they have a, they eliminated the sales tax on financial services. And it's like, well, that makes no sense. You know, so it's an industry that effectively do, that, that does not have to compete with the sales tax aspect of things. So broaden the sales tax base. Uh, Texas Public Policy Foundation ran a study on this as a path to eliminate the property tax. And what they ultimately found was, is that the property tax could go away at the end of 10 years. Uh, the overall sales tax rate would decrease it would produce more revenue and lower the overall tax burden on every Texan. So, you know, when you look at it from that standpoint, as far as how you're going to reclaim for the property tax, um, we have to remember with the federal government gone, we've got way more money in the pockets of Texas taxpayers that eventually go into discretionary spending. Uh, you know, you've got an economic boom like you've never seen, because when you remove federal regulatory accumulation, you actually, th that study from George Mason University found out that the impact of that is very regressive, right? So it affects the, the poor and the working poor the most. So you do that, you remove those regulatory burdens, you decrease the hurdles for people to go into, to become entrepreneurs and start businesses. And so therefore you restore the bridge from poverty to prosperity. So, um, you know, that that's where you do it. We already know we're overpaying, which means that every dollar that comes here comes out of Texas taxpayers' pockets. It's just a matter of which system makes the most sense that is not immoral uh, and that is the most fair for every Texan to reclaim that revenue uh, for government funding. Now, so how much of your campaign, like aside from the, like selling people on those logistics, because that that's not an easy sell. You, you used a lot of big words there that I understood um, that I'm sure Mike Rohan and Chad understands because he works in financial services. I know him personally, but I'm not sure that your average voter even understands. No, but, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what Texas voters do understand. Um, they understand that we have leadership in Texas, particularly a lieutenant governor, that has failed to secure the border. You know, they understand when I say that on June 6, 1944, 160,000 Allied troops landed on the beaches of Normandy in the largest amphibious invasion in modern history, and that many illegal aliens cross the border into Texas every single solitary month, right? They understand that we have 1,254 miles of border 
that is being unprotected by the federal government and has been effectively given off to the cartels. They understand that we have a lieutenant governor that has promised since 2014 to not only secure the border, but to reduce property tax. And our property taxes are now the sixth highest in the United States. They understand at a fundamental level that every day we wake up here in Texas, our rights and liberties are under assault by the federal government. And so they know that they have a fundamental right to decide. But I, I will tell you, if you want to talk about, you know, getting rid of all the Texit minutia, the deep dives, which I cover in the book and we have on our website at texitnow.org, here's the fundamental question that we have been asking Texans for years. And it's simply this. If Texas was already a free, independent, self-governing nation state, a nation among nations, self-governing in every respect, we had control over our own immigration and border policy, we had our own currency, we had our own military, uh, you know, we even had our own passports and embassies and our own Olympic team, right? So en envision it. Texas <laughs> is a free and independent state already. And instead of talking about Texas, we were talking about joining the union. Knowing everything you know about the federal government right now, would you vote yep. to join the union? Absolutely not. Well, not if, you, would, if you wouldn't vote hell. to join, then you would never vote to stay. Yep. And and that's what fundamentally the people of Texas, I, I believe, understand. And that's why they've been responding in such a way that, again, we say with all confidence, if it goes to a vote tomorrow, we win. And we don't win by a little. We win by a lot. Yeah, it's it's astounding to me when you do phrase it like that. And somebody asked that exact question um at the hearing for constitutional amendment uh 32 in new hampshire uh, a couple weeks ago at the new hampshire state house in concord when they were hearing again the constitutional amendment just to allow the people of new hampshire to have a vote in the matter and that question was posed to the state reps and i can see a couple of them no probably not after they'd spent the whole day arguing that this was bad it was terrible we can't leave the country well, look, people have to understand. I mean, here here in Texas, we have an easy time of it because, you know, as I said, Article 1, Section 2, which is the Texas Bill of Rights, um, Article 1, Section 2 says that all political powers inherent in the people and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit. The, the people of Texas... The people of Texas stand pledged to the preservation of a Republican form of government that's subject to this limitation only, is the people have at all times the inalienable right to alter, reform, or abolish their government in such manner as they may think expedient. Okay, that's Article One, Section Two. That is a reservation, that, and that has existed in every constitution in Texas, all the way back to the Republic of Texas Constitution in 1836. But what it is, it, it is a it is a fundamental Jeffersonian principle espoused in the Declaration of Independence. And just like a freedom of speech or the right to keep and bear arms or any of those other inalienable rights that we think of, the right of self-determination and self-government are fundamental. They're fundamental rights. And as such, any politician, whether it be in Texas or Washington, D.C. or in New Hampshire, that stands between the people and that expression of their sovereign political will as guaranteed not by the Constitution, but just by virtue of us being alive, anyone who stands between that is uh, essentially depriving us of our rights. Just like it's just as if they slapped tape over our mouth and told us we couldn't speak, or they came in and started kicking in our doors and confiscating guns, or told us that we had to worship a certain way or couldn't worship another way. It's the same thing. Now, are you familiar with Article 10 of the New Hampshire Constitution? I I'm not. Let me bring this. This 
to be perfectly honest, as an anarchist myself, as somebody who identifies as an anarchist, it pains me to admit that this piece of law is one of the most beautiful pieces of writing I've ever seen. And where it reads, Article 10, the right of revolution. Government being instituted for the common benefit, protection, and security of the whole community, and not for the private interest or emolument of any one man, family, or class of men. Therefore, whenever the ends of government are perverted and public liberty manifestly endangered, and all other means of redress are ineffectual, the people may, and of right ought to, reform the old or establish a new government. The doctrine of non-resistance against arbitrary power and oppression is absurd, slavish and destructive to the good and happiness of mankind i i I don't know if anyone read that out loud in that committee hearing but uh. (laughs) so it was read out loud in the committee hearing and one of the state reps uh representative brody duche i'll call him out by name i don't mind calling him out by name gave his little presentation about how anybody who considers secession uh might be guilty of treason and sedition and anybody who Hey, you know, here's the deal. And, and look, I, I hate to interrupt you, yeah. but, but I had a very similar thing happen to me on more than one occasion. And what I tell people is, look, I, I am publicly advocating for, for Texas independence. And if you think I'm committing treason or sedition, those are both named crimes. Instead of sitting here and pontificating, you probably should just dial 911, right? That's what you do when you witness a crime, right? But, you know, so continue. I, I'm yeah, sorry. No, you know, he, that one always just flies up my backside. He, I, I, well, my basic response to it was like, yes, Ed. But uh, he gave a little rant about how and it's not constitutional. And any committee member or state rep who votes in favor of this might be guilty of secession, uh, of sedition or a treason simply by voting in favor of it. When it was my turn to testify, they asked me to testify and I got up and I spoke and I'm like, you know what? I, I was going to go down a philosophical argument with you guys, but instead I'm just going to scream at you about Lysander Spooner and the Constitution of No Authority. And yes, Representative Dishay, I am committing sedition because the line between patriotism and sedition is pretty goddamn blurry. And if it's the government that's overstepping its bounds and declaring my speech and my demands for personal sovereignty to be sedition, then it's the government that's wrong, not me. Yeah, you know, and and it's interesting though because there is this this idea, uh, and I say there, there's a I think a compulsion by the opposition to go live in the 19th century, right? They are they are the regressive ones. They call themselves progressive, but they're they're regressive, right? Um, because that's where they live. They they don't realize the world's kept turning, right? Things have happened, and and you know, fundamentally they misunderstand the construction of the union because what neither one of us is talking about is actually secession. What that, you know, if, if we were wholly incorporated parts of some country, right, then that would be it. But the United, that's not what the United States is. The United States is a, a political and economic union guided only by the document from the sovereignty that the states have ceded under the United States constitution and anything not forbidden, not, not forbidden to the states or granted to the federal governments reserved to the states and the people. So, uh, you know, when you talk about treason, when they talk about treason and sedition, uh, first and foremost, it's important to understand that treason is the only defined crime in the United States constitution. And, and what we're talking about is not it. We're not talking about, um, you know, rate, you know, we're not, we're not talking about taking up arms and trying to overthrow the government. We're not talking about giving aid or comfort to her enemies. What we're talking about. Yeah. We're not a Biden. Yeah, what, what we're doing is we're talking about reasserting our status as an independent nation, reclaiming our right of self-government as recognized 
by you know the last 80 years of United States foreign policy. So that, uh, that's it, an interesting way to frame it for Texas, is you're talking about reasserting your status as an independent country. Texas has been an independent country. Like that's the other thing I think people are forgetting about here. Well, is like Texas theoretically was also, an independent country that voluntarily joined the union. New Hampshire never really had a period of independence. It went from being a colony to a self-governing state within the Articles of Confederation and then having the Constitution thrust upon it by the other 12 states. Well, look, okay, so so let, let's roll it back, though, right? Yep. So if you look at what the Declaration of Independence says, right, it's the Declaration of Independence of the 13 colonies from the, from Great Britain. And what it talks about in there is it specifically says that the state, that, that the colonies are withdrawing and are now states, you know, they have all the rights of a state on the same level as the state of Great Britain, right? And that's a paraphrase. Uh, but, but the bottom line is, is that from the moment that they signed the Declaration of Independence, <clears throat> they recognized themselves individually as self-governing independent nation states that were working together for a certain good. There was no political construct. There was no economic construct. There was even, you know, barely uh, through the Continental Congress, a mutual defense pact, right? But from that moment on, they became that. And there is an explicit and implicit recognition that all states of the union are, in effect, self-governing sovereign entities. And you can and see that. The articles, the, the, the U.S. Constitution might have been the first successful American coup in all reality. The Articles of Confederation were a beautiful piece of treaty. The Articles of Confederation were a treaty between independent countries and independent states to get together. And they formed the Continental Congress. Like you said, all they did was, all the Continental Congress was empowered to do by the Articles of Confederation was settle issues and disputes between the states negotiate trade with other foreign states on behalf of the states and declare war and raise an army with unanimous consent of every state. Yeah. So Yeah, I, look, and and I, I you know, and I I try to help people understand that you know, this big difference between secession and withdrawing membership from the union because I think it's important for people to you know, there there is America Think about it like and then there is the United like States War. of America, right? There is an Amer there's America, which is sort of those principles that we recognize. But then there's the United States of America, which effectively, because of the Constitution, is it, it is an economic treaty, right? It's a it's a free trade yep. agreement, right? It's a free travel agreement, like the Schengen Zone in in Europe. Uh, it is a mutual defense pact, right? It is a currency union. And it's a smattering of a postal union. And beyond that, that is literally everything else. I mean, if you go look at Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution, what you find there is a list of everything states are forbidden from doing, period, right? Those are the things that states are forbidden from doing. Guess what you don't find in there? Withdrawing from the union. It's not forbidden to the states. And so, therefore, under the Tenth Amendment, it's very clear that those that is, a, 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 some, that is an action that is reserved to the states and the people. So, um, you know, these there, there are these folks out there that just like this numbskull that you mentioned, and yes, I call him a numbskull, and much like Elliot Axelman, I would be more than happy to debate that guy, uh, you know, <laughs> every day of the week and twice on Sunday, because honestly, I think I probably, since the start 
of this interview have forgotten more than that guy probably ever knows. Uh, but the, the bottom line is this, is that when it comes to the right of self-determination, it doesn't matter what kind of nonsense that guy says. And, and you know that because how weak and ineffective his arguments are, they are, they are borderline lies based on, well, they're just outright lies, mischaracterizations, but understand that that's they always generate they always land on the fear issue right you're going to be arrested for treason and sedition you're going to get invaded you know it's always this fear and we saw that play out we saw it happen in 2014 during the scottish independence referendum we saw it during the brexit debate yep. and, and they even had it here right when when kyle filed our bill uh you had these some of these political establishment types going around going oh you know, you guys do this, they're going to cut off social security and they're going to let grandma die in a ditch. And it's like, man, you guys don't even read your own laws. You don't even read your own <laughs> policies. As long as grandma doesn't move to North Korea, Cuba, or Syria, she gets her social security check. So who's lying now, right? It's just fear mongering. She might not get her Medicare, but it says, it's not to say Texas doesn't have its own system in place to take care of people. Well, but, but even with Medicare, right? You, you have to remember all of those, uh, any, uh, most of those things like, like social security, right? Any federal pension benefit, uh, ha, you had, you, it is a direct interaction between the individual and the federal government, right? So it's right. an earned benefit. So no matter where you live, you collect it. And that includes veterans retirement benefits, veterans pension benefits, and even veteran disability. But then you get into something like a Medicare. Well, every right. state, every citizen pays into the Medicare trust fund. So, when, when you get to that fourth stage post-referendum, right, which is the negotiation stage, uh, that has, you know, that has to, we that conversation has to be had, which is what about our citizens' money that is sitting over there right. in the Medicare trust fund now? Because Sorry. we'd like that back, please. They spent it on war. But, but here's what's funny. Un, unlike Social Security, the Medicare trust fund is flush. Right? It's not it, as flush as you'd think. So, well, it's not it's not as flush as it should be, but it's also not on the road to bankruptcy uh, in the next ten years, like Social Security. If you were to listen to the Medicare trustees, it is. Mm. So, uh, weirdly enough, that touches on one of my areas of expertise. I was actually up in Concord today testifying on a bill. The bill I was testifying on today was a insurance deregulation. That's what I've done non-political side for the past decade is working in health insurance specifically in medicare and medicaid mm. uh, regulation and it's a nightmare to navigate um but i i think i might be one of like the five people in new hampshire that reads the medicare trustees report every year right because uh, most people don't even know it's a thing um they're actually estimating that unless they increase medicare premiums increase the maximum uh, contribution limit so from one hundred eighteen thousand to two hundred thousand on your taxes and uh, increase the Social Security, Medicare, and FICA withholding taxes significantly in the next five years. By 2035, Medicare will be insolvent. Uh, and again, you know, given given the track record, I mean, especially, <laughs> excuse me while I reposition yeah. here, but, you know, get, given the track record, that, hasn't, that doesn't surprise me. Now, I haven't seen yeah. that most recent report, uh, but I think for all of us, I think it, it should give us a sense of urgency. Uh, Absolutely. We, we know that the federal government is pulling a Thelma and Louise over a cliff. And as I told somebody yesterday, uh, the time to get off the Titanic is not when it's on the bottom of the North Atlantic. It's right? when it's in the pier. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, we all the signs are there. You know, we cross over the $30 trillion mark for the federal debt. Uh, you know, we've got major federal pension plans that are getting ready to go tango uniform. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, 
if we're going to have a shot at preserving and building, then now is the time. There, there's never there's never been a better time, and there will never be a better time beyond this because the federal government is not on a trajectory of reform, repeal, and repair. No, it's on a it's on a trajectory of spend, spend, and borrow. And unfortunately, it's not their own debt they're borrowing into. It's our grandchildren's debt. It's our children's debt. It's the future's debt. And it's unelected bureaucrats in D.C. and elected representatives in D.C. who seem to think that they can borrow against the prosperity of the future to fund their dreams now. But their dreams aren't even that good. Oh, look, they love to kick the can down the road. I mean, it's, you know, uh, I got into a, into an argument. I wouldn't call it a debate because debates are rational and reasonable, and this person was not, uh, over the federal debt. And, and it was, you know, it's like, okay, so exactly what is your threshold, right? You, you agree that debt is bad. You agree the federal debt is out of control, but you think $30 trillion is not a good enough reason for tax it. Okay, well, what about when it was $19 trillion or $10 trillion or $6 What trillion? about inflation? Leave the debt aside. What about the fact that the federal government has printed over 50% of all dollars circulating in existence in the past two years? Well, but and, and that's really sort of my point here is yeah. for many people, and I would, you know, and I'm not going to, you know, I don't know, I don't know if, if the, the folks that are watching are going to be lit that are listening to this. I don't know where they stand on this issue, but my message to anyone who is not even willing to consider this is simply this. What is your breaking point? You know, is, is preserving the union, the hill you're willing to die on and the hill you're willing to sacrifice your children and grandchildren on. Uh, and, and if that's the case, if that's not the case and you're, you're, you adhere to a very specific set of principles then what would you do to preserve those principles both for yourself and for future generations? Uh, and, you know, if reclaiming and reasserting your status as an independent nation and embracing the right of self-government uh, is, is the thing that preserves those principles and saves them as a legacy for future generations, then why not at least consider it? Yeah, I, I was joking a couple months back that I think the actual path forward, um, and I hate to say this, People will get mad at me for suggesting that this is the path, but the only path forward is convincing everyone, like en masse, is going to be to have help Cal exit get it on the ballot in time for the 2024 election, and then have Donald Trump win that election, and California will vote to secede in a heartbeat. Donald Trump, as president, wouldn't stop them. He'd make a show of waving Nancy Pelosi off uh to see and retaking the congress without any californian votes but the moment Ca the moment trump would let california go and the moment they enter phase four negotiations the whole thing would fall apart texas would be gone in a week alaska would be gone in a week hawaii would be gone in a week and you'd see start states start peeling off in a moment the moment california votes to go just because they don't like trump yeah you know and and, I, and i'll say this you know for us um, the media has painted what we do as sort of this knee-jerk reaction to Biden getting elected. Oddly enough, it's the same thing that they said when Obama got elected, right? right. They, they, they neglect the fact that our organization was founded under the presidency of George W. Bush. Uh, and we've been through both Democrat and Republican and, uh, you know, Republican uh, presidencies. But, the, but, but here's the bottom line. Look at that trajectory, right? This is not a partisan issue. You go back to 2014 uh, when the, the Texas issue was polled, 
by, you know, this is Reuters Ipsos poll that I talk about in the book. And the results were 54% Republicans, 50% independents, and 35% Democrats. So, you know, you, you look at that, those are 2014 numbers. Now you've got polls coming out, uh, you know, over the last couple of years showing, you know, two thirds of Southern Republicans won out and, you know, they, they slice and dice it all these different ways, but the sentiment is there. It, it is not, and should never be about the election of a, of a single person. It should be a, a recognition of the fact that number one, the union that you're part of no longer serves your people. And number two, the best way to serve the people of your state is to reclaim your right of self-government and become a self-governing independent nation again. Yep. Now, switching gears here a little bit. So we, we can both agree wholeheartedly that the people's right to secession and right to leave the union is a phenomenal idea. I think you said something not quite there, and it kind of clicked with an idea for me that maybe we should start phrasing it as an argument that says, no, this isn't Gettysburg, it's Brexit. Like, we're not trying to fight a civil war to declare independence and secession. We're trying to peacefully vote and walk away from a trade union that we don't want to be a part of anymore. Um, but looking inside the United States, like taking secession from the United States off the table for a second, is it more realistic that we might see in the near future people opening up to the idea of realigning state lines, breaking up certain states and seceding from individual states. I know there's the Jefferson movement that's trying to break off from California and form another state because the northern counties of California don't really fit in up there. There's people in uh, western and northern New York who want to split off from Albany and New York City because they don't feel represented and they feel overwhelmed by the 14 million people in New York City outvoting them every election. Like, is, is it maybe more feasible to approach selling your everyday voter on just solidifying their own representation, their own culture within their own state, maybe as an on-ramp to the greater discussion of secession, or maybe as a road from the secession argument towards more localized uh, argumentation of self-governance. Yeah, I mean, you know, and what you're talking about, you know, we refer to as the the 51st state movement, right? You've got these right. these realignments. You got states that want to break up, states where counties want to go join other states, that that sort of thing. And look, fundamentally, um, while I I respect those those sorts of efforts, number one, it doesn't really apply for Texas because, frankly, when when we're purchasing waffle iron shaped like our state, we really don't want the shape to change. <laughs> uh, but but it, since it's not applicable to us, though, the, the other part is, is is that it it fundamentally ignores the role that the federal government plays in the political outcomes that we're getting in our states. Right. So a, a good example of this is this election cycle that we're in here in Texas. Well, the last several. Uh, one of the things that that we proposed as an organization a couple of cycles, a couple of sessions back was uh, the elimination of campaign contributions from outside of Texas into Texas races. Uh, part of the reason being is that it for us, it's not a campaign finance issue. It's a state sovereignty issue. We don't need if we don't allow campaign contributions from China or Russia or Mexico, we shouldn't allow them from California or New York or K Street lobbyists. Right. It's a sovereignty issue. Uh, and, and we couldn't get any traction on it. And consequently, what you have is you have money that pours into these races from all of these different states. And there's no way that you get around that without a prohibition. 
And the federal government doesn't want that. They want that free flow of campaign cash to affect elections. So, you know, and I, I cited the statistic earlier about the 41% of legislation here in Texas. I'm sure it's probably about the same everywhere else as well, is that it's a high percentage of our laws are being written out of Washington, D.C. or because of Washington, D.C. And of course, we can't ignore the impact of the quote unquote national political parties on the the level and quality of political discourse in our state. So if if the reshuffling kind of gets them there, that's fine. But it doesn't really solve the problem. And frankly, I think it burns up a little more time than than we all have. Right. So the time that we don't have is the big issue there. Like maybe well, it's like had- the convention of the states, right? It's like the the folks that are that are arguing for an Article Five convention. It's like you know, is this the most efficient path to achieve the outcome? And and much like the the reshuffling, you know, the fifty first state movement or the reshuffling of the counties, I don't believe the Article Five convention process is the most efficient use of our time. It does not get us to the optimal solution at the quickest amount of time. It, no, it doesn't, and it. I mean, there's a whole lot of other problems with the convention of the states, including the fact that the found, framers of the Constitution forgot to clarify exactly how it fucking works. <laughs> so, yeah, and and in the time we have, that that's a no, that's like an hour discussion, and you right. know, we we probably should have kicked that dog at the beginning and not near the end, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it's well, I mean, you look at it. The Constitution is an imperfect document. You mentioned there's things they left out, and there there is a lot of literature. If you read the anti-federalist papers, they talk about the process of secession, never making it into the constitution because people couldn't agree on it. They talk about the defining of how a constitutional convention should be, should be governed, making it not making it to the constitution because people couldn't agree about it. It's an imperfect government document that as Lysander Spooner has said, be it one thing or another, the constitution has either allowed the oppressive government that we have to exist or it has been powerless to stop it. Either way, it's truly unfit to exist. Like, it was a great idea in theory and in paper, but in practice, what the Constitution gave us was an overburdening, ever-growing bureaucratic government with the necessary and proper clause allowing federal agencies to promulgate rules with the force of law and the weight of law behind them without ever having a vote in Congress. Yeah, or the you know the ever creeping cancer of the uh, of the interstate commerce clause, but you know, look, I, I I look at that and I don't see it so much as a cloud as much as a silver lining or an opportunity. You know, the fact that they didn't line out some of those issues makes our argumentation a lot stronger, specifically because of the Tenth Amendment. You know, the the silence in Article One, Section Ten, on the issue of states withdrawing means that, okay, look, we're not under the same constraints that the UK had uh, under the EU treaty with Article 50. You know, once they triggered Article 50, it was a two-year timeline and there was a withdrawal agreement. I mean, it was, and when you had a bunch of remainers in power at Westminster, I mean, it was, it was horrible. The beautiful part about it is, is that because, because there is no set mechanism inside the constitution, then that means that it is effectively left up to the people of the state so choosing to withdraw as to what that looks like. And it means you can take as much time or as little time as necessary. Um, You know, you can uh, handle your constitutional issues, your statutory issues, the international issues, the negotiated issues. 
and work through it so that, you know, in, in such a manner is that it doesn't create a, a, an immense amount of uncertainty and disruption that we know is fundamentally bad for the economy. So, uh, you know, we, we have some opportunity here that I think is granted by some of that silence. And, and while I agree that it did make things a little more difficult in some areas and allowed the federal government to get out of control. In this instance, I believe that it, it could be a helpful pressure valve to let us get out. Now, do you think there's maybe any sort of precedence that can be drawn on to make an argument in favor of peaceful, voluntary uh, elected secession via referendum based on the process that former U.S. overseas territories have used to secede from U.S. control? Like when the Philippines declared said they didn't want to be a U.S. territory anymore, it was a simple referendum, bye. Puerto Rico gets a vote every five to 10 years, they call a referendum, and it loses every time. But everybody's usually on edge about, is Puerto Rico leaving this time? We don't know. Well, that's because, you know, the Puerto Rican ballot, they typically put three three options on there. You know, leave, stay, or statehood. Make your mind. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's territory, yeah. statehood, or leave, right? And and so, you know, the, 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 that's a whole other topic. But look, when I talk about 85 plus years of history that we can study from, uh, there's plenty of precedent, maybe perhaps not in U.S. law, maybe a little bit, uh, but l- let's kind of look at, at fundamentally where we are, okay? So when the United States joined the United Nations, they signed the United Nations Treaty, which required an explicit recognition of the right of self-determination, right? So by treaty, if you follow the establishment's mindset where treaty law is supreme even over the Constitution, then by treaty, they have explicitly recognized and agreed to uh, uphold the right of self-determination, right? So they are treaty-bound to do that. But we see post-1945, we see this explosion in the growth of nation-states. At the end of World War II, there were roughly 54 recognized fully sovereign countries around the world, and by the end of the 20th century, there were 195, uh, I believe, at least 192 by about the mid-90s. So those countries didn't fall from space. The earth didn't get any bigger. They were all people that went through this process. And and we know this, is that out of all of those, uh, in about the 52 independence referenda that have been held over the last 100 years, um, all but two of those, all but two of those succeeded eventually. And two of those additional actually succeeded on a second ballot. They failed on the first. Ten years later, voters revisited and voted their way out. So we know that the the likelihood, the probability is, is that if it goes on a ballot, it wins because history tells us that. And there's plenty of international law precedent. There's plenty of, plenty of constitutional law precedent, federal law. Pre- I mean, there's there's tons and tons of evidence to show that we put it to the, the we put the question to the people of Texas or any state, and they make that decision. Then that decision sticks. So I, I wasn't aware that only two had failed, and that's a mind blowing statistic. And seeing other Scotland, ones, Scotland that- and Quebec, Scotland and Quebec were the ones that failed, and and there were actually two additional that failed uh, on the first ballot, and then ten years later, within ten years, they revisited the question again and voted themselves out. So, um, you know, it's just like you know that, that. So it's all on our side, right? The probabilities are high that you put it on a ballot. And next thing you know, we're going to be filled in an Olympic team, right? The Texas you're, bobsled team during the Winter Olympics. <laughs> you're giving me faith that I'm not only going to see to live in independent Texas and independent New Hampshire, but maybe even a United Ireland once again in my life. Uh, that's something I'd look forward to. If Scotland gets their act together and declares their independence, Northern Ireland really ought to be next. 
Uh, we got another question, Mike Rohan in chat. He says, sorry if we haven't touched on this already, but what is your take on the influx of movers to Texas with the mass migration from California? Will this change the political climate in an undesirable way? Or the new movers, freedom lovers as well, who finally escaped or appreciate freedom? Or are they simply turning Austin into New California? Well, there are some people who would argue that Austin is already New California. Um, you know, sort of the running joke when we talk about the government down there is we refer to it as Moscow on the Colorado. Um, but the, you know, th there are really two different ways to look at the in migration, right? Texas had a, a ton of in migration since the last census. Uh, and, and part of that is, you know, obviously cause for concern, right? These are tech, tech, uh, big tech companies moving from Silicon Valley to Texas, uh, and bringing a big batch of workers with them, uh, who are all kind of, of that mindset from California. And so there is a big concern. And part of that migration is what's driving property prices and property taxes higher here in Texas. But there is a, another side of that coin. Uh, and, and it's those people that are actually fleeing states like California because they are political, cultural, or economic refugees, right? They, they, they think like we do, they, effectively vote like we do. They believe in freedom. They believe in liberty. They believe in rights. Uh, and, and they understand that wherever state they're moving from ha has lost its way and there's no way they can be effective and uphold those principles. So they come to Texas as their, their last hope, their last bastion before, I guess they go carve out a piece of territory in Antarctica if we fall. Right. Um, and, and here's, what's interesting though, while you would think that there's some, con some concern about those, you know, those, California tech workers moving here, uh, during the last senatorial election, uh, it was Cruz, Ted Cruz versus Beto O'Rourke. Uh, you know, Beto came really close to beating Ted Cruz. There were two exit polls that were done, uh, on the, in that race. And what they found was, is that non-native Texans broke for Ted Cruz over Beto O'Rourke. Huh. So what that, you know, what that shows is, is that this crop of people, these pe people that are political, cultural, and economic refugees here in Texas are not wanting to vote in what they just ran from. They, they want Texas to be Texas, and that's why they moved here, and they want to do everything they can to fight and preserve it. It reminds me of how shocked everyone is when they learn that the uh, Cuban and Hispanic population in Florida tends to vote Republican so damn always. And like, well, they escaped Cuba. Well, they're vehemently <laughs> anti-communist. You know, they yeah. understand. Um, you know, it's like some of the folks that I see here, you know, we, we have people in our organization that uh, grew up in, in Soviet Russia or grew up in communist China, you know, and or one of the, you know, some of the Eastern Bloc countries behind the Iron Curtain. And, you know, they, they will tell their stories and they say, guys, you have to understand you have to fight communism here and you have to win because there is no place for you to run if it, if you fall. Uh, and it's, you know, their, their testimonies, their stories are always extremely poignant and always make a, a big difference in talking to people and making sure that they're properly motivated to help us get and win a referendum on Texas independence. Well, I wish you luck on that. I think it's going to be a fantastic process to watch play out. I think you guys are going to have a much better chance than we did getting it through the New Hampshire house to get it through the Texas house. And God, would it be exciting to see that on the ballot in Texas? Because it's, like I said, it's only going to take one state to do it. And then the cascade is going to be unstoppable. Well, look, let, let me just, let me give you these words of encouragement, just so you understand. Yeah. It, it's, it's not, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. 
Uh, it took Scotland 800 years to, to get their referendum. And I'm not saying it's going to take us 800 years, but I'm saying you, you don't quit until the job is done. And Absolutely. the fact of the matter is, is that you guys are much closer than you probably think or it feels right now, but, but you're on the right track and keep up the good work. All right. Well, thank you for the encouragement. Thank you for all your hard work. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you. Uh, you're coming to Liberty Forum or someone from Texas is coming to Liberty Forum March 4th, 5th, and 6th in Manchester, New Hampshire. If you guys haven't gotten your tickets to that yet, go to nhlibertyforum.com. It's a fantastic time to visit New Hampshire. If you're curious about the Free State Project, great time to get to hear some awesome speakers talk about secession and 3D printing and free speech and cryptocurrency and all your other favorite Liberty topics. Uh, while you're browsing the internet, though, definitely make sure head over to Amazon, look up Dan's book, text it how and why and how Texas will leave the union. Pick it up, give it a read, peruse it, leave him a review, five-star rating, 300 ratings. You can't, you know, it's a good book. I mean, people only go online to complain about things and he's got a five-star rating on the book. So go and pick it up. Give him a follow on the Twitter at, I have this, hold on, the, the Texian DM. Give him a follow on Twitter. Dan, anything you want to leave people with? <laughs> Say again? Anything you want to leave people with? Yeah, look, I would just encourage people, if they have more questions about Texit, head over to texitnow.org, or you can visit my website at danielomiller.com uh, to find out more about our campaign for lieutenant governor. And uh, I will say this, help us break through the mainstream media silence. Share, share, share. Open your mouth. Talk to your friends. Talk Share to your neighbors. Everywhere. Do everything you can. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you for those listening at home. Thank you for those contributing. And once again, thanks to our sponsors, SnackSwag.com, Free State Project, Jeremy Kaufman's Campaign for U.S. Senate, and all of our, all of our awesome and amazing patrons. Until next time, everybody, stay free. Thanks again for tuning in and joining us tonight. Make sure you hit that like button and leave a comment below to let us know your thoughts. If you haven't subscribed, go ahead and hit that big red subscribe button on YouTube and turn on notifications to get alerted every time we go live. If you enjoyed this content, you can join our production team on Patreon by following the link in the description. And don't forget to follow on social media and join our community Discord channel by following the links in the description as well. The best part of all of this is the community that we're building and growing. So go ahead and join us. And thanks once again to our awesome sponsors and patrons for making all of this possible. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always catch it the next day on YouTube, Odyssey, Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. So until next time, everybody, be free.